Hey, U.S. Cellular customers, I've got good news, so don't hit skip forward just yet. I'm talking about their special customer event, Us Days. What's Us Days? It means exclusive offers just for their customers, just to say thanks, like up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. No, I didn't misread that. That's up to $1,200 off. They must really like you all. Us Days at U.S. Cellular. Exclusive offers just for you, just to say thanks. Right now, U.S. Cellular customers could get up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. Visit uscellular.com for terms and restrictions. It's 2013, and the downtown project is in full swing. In this once desolate patch of the city, just five miles from the world-famous Las Vegas Strip, Exciting new businesses are throwing open their doors. Fading retro buildings have turned into swanky cocktail bars and bustling restaurants. Colorful murals decorate the streets. There's a hip record store, the kind that sells obscure vinyl. A couple who ran a famous bookshop in New York have moved all the way to downtown Vegas to open a new venture. A 7-Eleven has been transformed into a chic theater. And on its beautiful Art Deco facade, neon lettering spells out its name, Inspire. Inside, the building hosts talks on the latest ideas in tech. And the centerpiece of the downtown project is the famous Container Park. You cannot miss it. The entrance has a big geodesic dome, the type popularized by the pioneering American architect and futurist Buckminster Fuller. If you walk past at night, you can see the dome glowing in different colors. Next to the dome, there's an enormous 50-foot-tall metal sculpture of a praying mantis. At night, it shoots flames out of its antennae, making a spectacular noise and beaming out streaks of bright light. And if you're nearby, you can feel the heat. The praying mantis rests on top of a car, which is a clue to its origins. The sculpture started its life at Burning Man, which Tony Shea was a big fan of. More on that later. Container Park is made up of 56 multicolored shipping containers, housing businesses and eating establishments. Today, lots of cities have fashionable areas like this, with restaurants and retail inside of shipping containers. But in the early 2010s, this concept was very new and very cool. Downtown Vegas's Container Park helped spread the trend. There are stores selling everything from candy to artistic vases to hipster eyeglasses. There's a stage for live music where local bands and DJs entertain the crowds. There's a life-size checkers board where you can enjoy watching people pushing the huge circular playing pieces around. And lush greenery makes the place feel like an oasis in the desert. The atmosphere is electric. Young and ambitious people are flocking here from all over the US. Journalists are embedding themselves here, like foreign reporters at the front lines of an exciting new story. Downtown Vegas feels alive. And it's not just recreation. Socially-minded businesses are springing up everywhere. There's Factorly, a 25,000-square-foot hardware manufacturing plant meant to kickstart American-made technology. It means jobs for local people. Even President Obama's excited. He singles out Factorly as a great example of American ingenuity. Kind of like a, a Kinko's or a copy shop, but instead of printing flyers, 
They're going to be able to print custom parts for American products. Turntable Health has also just opened. That's the healthcare clinic for low-income people we heard about in episode one, innovative in its use of technology to deliver affordable care. And there are plans to build schools focused on teaching kids how to become entrepreneurs. Flush with cash from his sale of Zappos to Amazon, Tony Shea is writing big checks. He has some $350 million to invest. And just a year into this bold experiment in social engineering, his efforts to transform downtown Vegas into the happiest place on earth seem to be well underway. He wanted it to be like Burning Man meets Ted meets South by Southwest every day of the week in downtown Vegas. So how did he do it? Did his vision for a tech utopia really work wonders on this city? I'm off to Vegas to find out. I'm Nastran Tavakolifar, and from Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, this is The Cost of Happiness. Episode 3, The Company Town. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I land in Vegas on a scorching August evening. Soon, we're driving down the strip, past the sparkling lights of the MGM Casino and Trump Tower. Beyond the grand buildings, a harsh landscape of red rock sprawls out in every direction. The air is hot and dry. It's strange to think how all this civilization has emerged in what is actually a very hot environment. It's late, so we head straight to our hotel downtown, a few miles north of the glitz and glamour. After a night of rest in our lime green hotel rooms, complete with white pleather headboards, I'm itching to start exploring. I'm also starving. Our first stop, a restaurant called Eat, run by Chef Natalie Young. Now, if anyone talks to you about the downtown project, they will almost certainly mention Eat. It's often the first business people talk about when I ask them to name a success story from the downtown project. Chef Natalie opened Eat in 2012. The restaurant was one of the first places Tony invested in as part of the downtown project, or as many people call it, the DTP. There were no businesses here. I think there was a tattoo shop, but other than that, I remember opening or getting my keys. The first day I got my keys and I was standing out right out in front of the store and I kind of looked this to the left and I looked to the right and I went, I guess they'll come if they come. Remember, back when she started, the downtown project was in its infancy. 
Today, Eat is a beloved breakfast and lunch spot that serves hearty dishes like prime rib hash and truffled egg sandwiches. Their breakfast burrito is especially delicious. The vibe inside is modern and low-key. I sit down with Chef Natalie over a huge plate of shrimp and grits. Eat is also famous for their enormous plates, and I can confirm that the portions here are massive. I wanted everybody from a, you know, a kid that works ballet to a food critic to come in here and be comfortable. Ten bucks or, or $10,000, I want everybody to have the same experience. Covered in tattoos and sporting a cowboy hat and colorful cravat, Chef Natalie is known across Vegas for her style, talent and work ethic. She's often seen driving around in her bright blue Porsche with the word chef on the license plate. Originally from Colorado, Vegas has long played an important role in her life. So, wanted to know about your move to Las Vegas. Had a uh, substance abuse problem, uh, drugs and alcohol, and uh, I had gotten sober um, a few years previous in Las Vegas. And so I knew where to come when I was uh, struggling and I came down here and went into uh, a rehab for two months and then into sober living for four years. So, and then here I am, uh, I'll have uh, August 31st, I'll have 22 years. Awesome, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. big deal. Awesome. After rehab, Natalie worked as a chef in hotels in Paris and then back in Vegas. Towards the end, she was making good money, but the environment was unbearable. I don't really, I don't mention the name of the hotel. It was horrible. I was going to either commit suicide or homicide. And uh, and one day I just had enough. And I'd never just left a job before. And I left. And I remember it was right in the middle of a recession. I called my dad. I said, Dad, I quit my job. And he said, you better go back and get your job. And I'm like, well, I would rather at this point live in the desert in a teepee than to work there. Chef Natalie was at the end of her tether. She wanted to leave Vegas and start fresh. But then, one evening, while out with friends, she popped into the downtown cocktail room, a bar owned by Michael Cornthwaite. Michael's an old pal of Natalie's, and she knows him from her early days in the Vegas hospitality scene. Also, he was fast becoming one of Tony Shea's closest friends. In fact, several people have told me that Michael played a big role in selling Tony on Las Vegas. Natalie describes her run-in with Michael. He goes, hey, are you really set on moving? Is there any way we can keep you in town? What about your own restaurant? And I was like, you're stupid. I don't have money for a restaurant. He goes, you're stupid. What if you don't need it? He, those are literally the words we said to one another. And then um, somebody walked up and said, hey, Michael, I want to let you know, Tony just came. Michael excused himself from the table and said, please don't leave because I want to introduce you to take you over and talk to Tony. Chef Natalie had never met Tony Shea. Apart from a bit of hearsay about his plans for downtown Vegas, she didn't really know who the man was. He's like, I'm over here. So he took me and my friends over where Tony was sitting and uh, Michael's wife was sitting with Tony. I said, hi, Tony, I'm Natalie. He goes, I know who you are. What size restaurant do you want? And I kind of stumbled over my words. I didn't really know what to say. He said, well, this is Don. Don's going to be taking care of small business and he'll help you with the process. Start looking for a space. Natalie was astonished. This person was just going to give her the money to start a restaurant? It seemed crazy. I was like, yeah, yeah. I'd just been bamboozled by somebody. And then we went outside and my friend said, do you know what just happened? That's huge. 
So I went home and I Googled Tony. And I was like, oh, like, oh, he's, he's legit. Like, I made sure to do research to find out there was nothing bad about him. Like, what he said, if he said something to you, he it happened. It might not happen in a conventional way, but it happened. First, she needed to find a space for her restaurant. But the rents were too expensive in the busy parts of Vegas. She shared her concerns with Michael. He walked in one day and he goes, What's, how's it going? And I go, well, it doesn't make sense. Like, rent's $10,000 a month, and if I'm going to be selling pancakes for 10 or $12, I have to sell a lot of pancakes to pay rent. You know, a few days later, I think it was like 110 outside, and he walked me over here to 7th and Carson. And this place had been closed down for five years. It had boards on the Nobody looked at it, and we kind of washed the dirt off the window, and we were both like this. And there was no development over here at all. There was nothing over here. And he goes, what do you think? And I was like, I think, I think it's perfect. And, uh, and I, think, I think my rent started out like a, a little over $1,000, like $1,500. Perfect, right? However, first, Natalie had to write up a very detailed business plan. How much my utilities are going to be, how, my, how much my rent is going to be, how much labor I'm going to need, what's my food cost going to be, things like... Uh, you have to have insurance, things that most people, when they're starting out in the business, they don't understand all these things are necessary. Business licensing, cost of construction, all that stuff. I had to figure it all out and tell them what I think. Natalie really had to prove that she could run a successful restaurant. It took a long time to perfect the plan. I would go back and say, okay, I'm done. And they'd be like, oh, you were really close last week. Now you're really far away. Go back. And then finally, I think the seventh time they said, geez, this is it. Once her business plan finally got approved, the investment started rolling in. There were five people involved. Tony was the biggest investor, and then the other gentlemen, two of them invested $25,000, and then two other people invested $25,000 each. And then that got to the $225,000 what I asked for. And then in a year and three months, I paid it back. And then now they receive 50% of my bottom line. How does that feel? Um, 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing. Um, great deal for them, I think, but also not a good deal for them. If you look at it with me, it's a great deal, but if you look at it with the investments they've made with, with the hundreds of other businesses that didn't succeed, I don't really know, like, you know, it's hard to say. Like, I'm grateful for the, I'm grateful for the opportunity and Without eat, it opened some other doors. Natalie paid her loan back quickly, and others I spoke to emphasized to me that she was very responsible and didn't take this opportunity for granted. Still, even today, every month, the downtown project takes half of her profits. But I guess if you're at rock bottom and someone suddenly appears and says, I can make your dreams come true... Well, you can imagine how seductive that must be, even if it comes with some strings attached. Chef Natalie remembers the day Eat first opened. So I said, I'm going to quietly open on a Saturday because downtown's closed. And then I could maybe do 100 people for the day and I'll be really happy. And so I opened and we got 
crushed. And I think I did 150 people in three hours. Did Tony come on opening day? I think he came often in the beginning, yeah. How did you find him? What was your relationship like? We, you know, we traveled in different circles at that time. And then that circle drank. They had a good time. And I didn't drink, so it kind of separated me from them. I was never in the, in the, um, what do you call it? The, we just had different lifestyles. You know, he'd come in, stop in, and say, oh, I need, you know, 20 meals or 30 meals. Or can you cater this for 50 people? Or super generous. He would bring... Jewel and uh, the guy that owns Virgin Airline and Anthony Bourdain, like, I mean, you name it. Talk about different lifestyles. Tony was rolling with fellow billionaires and celebrities. Ten years later, and with rave reviews and loyal customers, Eat has transformed Natalie's life. Not in a million years did I think that that guy would have anything to do with me. Or, you know, this experience changed my life. Like, I signed the front of the check, not the back of the check. That, That in itself is a huge, huge thing to be able to say. And... I don't know how many humans on the planet get to have that experience. There's the mushroom. Alright. So what are we making tonight? Now we're doing the downtown Tony. Yeah. So what we do is we have some braised portobello mushrooms. And we marinate them and then we're going to throw them on the grill. Across the road from Eat is Veggie Nation, run by chef Donald Lemper, who also received an investment as part of the downtown project. So this is a downtown Tony in honor of Tony Shea. Like Eat, Veggie Nation is relaxed and unpretentious. The menu has vegan takes on well-loved dishes like beef tacos and pepperoni pizza. I've ordered the chicken burger and it tastes amazing. Chef Donald initially looks intimidating. He's a really big guy, but he's totally sweet and he's soft-spoken. I've been interested in food all my life. I grew up in the restaurant business. My uh, family had a small Italian restaurant in Staten Island. Originally from New York, his interest in vegan food began 20 years ago at a pivotal moment. I tested positive uh, for uh, multiple myeloma, which is uh, cancer of the plasma cells. So I really did some research and looked into it. I mean, one of the things that I come through is like being on a plant-based diet, eating a lot of greens and chlorophyll that goes into your blood and blood uh, oxygen goes into your blood, which oxygen is the enemy of the cancer. So it kind of really opened my eyes to all the benefits of a, of a vegan or a plant-based diet. I'm not saying that like being uh, vegan is going to cure cancer, but I mean, your lifestyle really matters and, and what you eat really matters and like 60% of chronic diseases are related to your diet. So that's how I came about being vegan, yeah. Like Chef Natalie, he came to Vegas when his life was unraveling. I came from Scottsdale, Arizona. I had this beautiful house and and family. And uh, because of the uh, real estate uh, collapse, I lost the house. I lost my job. I've been working in restaurants for 30 years, and it was the first time I'd ever been out of work. So uh, I happened to know know people that... uh, had some restaurants here in Las Vegas. While working in the casinos, he heard about the downtown project and about Tony's interest in funding restaurants. Quiet but enterprising, Chef Donald took matters into his own hands. So uh, what I did is I found out uh, the contact of the person who was running the project, 
and uh, I made arrangements to do like a food tasting with the whole group. What were the dishes that you prepared? Where did it happen? I did like 12 courses with like 30 people and I wanted them to like see a whole spectrum of what vegan food could be. Everything was made from scratch. I made made a, like a pho, like a, which is a Vietnamese like vegetable stew. I, I did uh, bao buns, I did dumplings, I did pizza, I did pasta. Can you describe Tony walking in, his crew work, walking in, what T- happened? Tony wasn't there that day, okay. yeah, but he had like the, the crew from the downtown project. And what I did with each dish is I tr- kind of tell them what the philosophy was behind the dish and what the preparation goes into it. So like after the meal, the, uh, the man I ran the project said, you guys, you know, you tested really high that we think that we, we could do something with you. And that's how it came about. Chef Donald soon received funding and Veggie Nation became part of the wave of businesses bringing new energy to downtown. It was really awesome because I, I was a little bit hesitant about it because the area, I remember I come down here at night uh, before we opened the restaurant and it was dead. I said, oh my God, what am I getting into? But thankfully, it worked. A lot of people from the downtown project were excited about it. A lot of people from Zappos were excited about it. So we've got a lot of them coming in in the beginning and there was a good buzz about the restaurant. And so when did you first meet Tony Shea? He was in the restaurant a few times when we first opened. I brought out a whole bunch of different things for him to taste and to check it out. It's funny, because he's, he's like a billionaire and he'd be walking and he'd walk past by the restaurant and he had like a backpack and he had like a mohawk haircut. Where do you think your life would be if you hadn't have kind of come across Tony Shea and this this great opportunity? Uh, I mean, uh, I lost my house and all the equity I had in it. Like I, I was set back like 20 years. So, um, I mean, I'm totally indebted and grateful to. I mean, like this is my dream and I'm, I'm living it here and this is my passion. So, without Tony Shea, this this wouldn't have happened. It's inspiring to hear Natalie and Donald's stories. They both encountered Tony when they were at rock bottom, and he swooped in at just the right moment, helping them realise their dreams. He's like a fairy godfather. It makes him seem sort of magical and larger than life. He's not your typical tech venture capitalist. He's investing in things like restaurants, places that will touch the lives of all kinds of people, not just techies. He wants to make a bigger impact. So let's zoom out for a minute and get a bird's eye view of what the DTP actually is. Here's Tony explaining the scope of the project in 2014. So 50 million is to be invested into small businesses to help build a sense of neighborhood and community. And the idea is invest in one to 200 small businesses. Uh, On the tech side, we have 50 million set aside to invest in tech companies. This is serious money, and its purpose is to actively reshape some 60 blocks of the city and remake it according to the principles, ideas, and tastes of Tony and his colleagues. This kind of weird hybrid between a corporation and community and city, that's never really been done before. It's definitely bold, but is it brand new? Not quite. There's a long history of big corporations kind of building housing for their workers, building urbanized community around the factory. Alyssa Walker writes about the tech world's attempts to reshape society and has reported on the DTP from its earliest days. The idea of a company town, 
where the stores, housing and jobs are all owned by one company with a particular vision, has many historical precedents. A famous example is Bourneville, near Birmingham in England, which was established in 1895 by a founder of Cadbury Chocolates, which today is owned by Chicago-based Kraft Foods. Now, in Bourneville, the factory was the centerpiece of the town and provided jobs, living quarters and social events for everyone who lived there. The head of Cadbury wanted to infuse the town with his personal ethos, which centred on health and fitness. So residents were encouraged to swim, walk and play sports. And the houses that Cadbury built were better than what was standard at the time, with private gardens and the latest equipment. It was a utopian vision in many ways. So with the creation of the downtown project in 2012, Tony Shea is following in this company town tradition. Hey, U.S. Cellular customers, I've got good news, so don't hit skip forward just yet. I'm talking about their special customer event, Us Days. What's Us Days? It means exclusive offers just for their customers, just to say thanks, like up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. No, I didn't misread that. That's up to $1,200 off. They must really like you all. Us Days at U.S. Cellular. Exclusive offers just for you, just to say thanks. Right now, U.S. Cellular customers could get up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. Visit uscellular.com for terms and restrictions. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. In 2013, he moves the headquarters of Zappos from Henderson another city in Nevada, to the City Hall building in downtown Vegas, which had been vacated. It's a sign that his community city mashup has truly begun. It was very symbolic, I think, that he moved into uh, City Hall because it was kind of replacing the political structure with his, his startup. At a time when tech companies are building self-contained campuses in suburban locations with everything from offices to food halls to tennis courts and swimming pools, Tony's looking to do something different. We started realizing that all those campuses, Apple, Nike, Google, were great for their employees, but they're actually relatively insular and don't really integrate or contribute to the community around them. And so the more we thought about it, the more we thought, what if we turned this idea inside out. What if we build a campus that's more like NYU, where the campus kind of blends in with the city and don't really know where one begins and the other ends? After he purchases the old city hall, Tony continues to follow this company town model. He buys up houses and flats, which are soon filled with Zappos employees. He then begins to purchase and redevelop casinos and various other properties across downtown, including several motels. Alyssa says these swift moves are pretty well received. The goodwill he had already kind of established by having this uh, giant company that was largely seen as a good thing in the Vegas area helped a lot. Mostly because the place is struggling. 
years of corruption and mismanagement meant that the city needed to look for other options. Vegas was in, like, economic shambles at this time. And if you go around the city when I was there, I really remember, like, foreclosures being everywhere, um, half-built hotel towers that just had cranes that were just, you know, had been motionless <laughs> for for years. Um, entire, like, neighborhoods that had just been completely abandoned and no investment whatsoever to be able to finish them. Other places, other cities that might not be facing that kind of hardship might not be as as welcoming. But Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman welcomes Tony with open arms. I've never really talked to a city official before who has been so you know, just literally giddy about about a company. Um, the government of the city of Las Vegas was just so happy to have them there and was so excited that they were kind of delivering on basically a, a master plan to bring economic development to the downtown, which they didn't have to work on at all. From the perspective of local government, the downtown project is a win-win situation. Outside funding, outside management, the city just has to say yes to Tony's philosophy. So the big bet is by focusing on these three C's, collisions, community, and co-learning. Collisions, community, co-learning. Tony's three C's. Not only is that going to lead to a happier and luckier community, but actually innovation and productivity increases. For Tony, community comes first. The idea is to invest in businesses that help build a sense of neighborhood and community. So even if there's an opportunity to make a lot of money, if it doesn't help build community, that's not something that we're, we're interested in doing. And soon, it really does feel like a place for everyone. Their goal was to create a place that was public. You know, of course, the restaurants that opened were open to anyone, a lot of the events, that you, you could pop your head in somewhere and just be like, oh, what's, what's going on here? Like, why are these people playing music in this alley? The heart of the downtown project is Container Park, that collection of multicolored shipping containers filled with restaurants, startups, music venues. For me, someone who writes about um, urbanism and public space and, you know, really trying to create a gathering area in a city that feels welcoming and where you actually can hang out and you feel like, you know, there's things to do. This kind of checked all those boxes. People could go and you could drink and you could shop and there was a giant playground in the middle. It was a place where, you know, you could do, you could have meetings, but you could also, you know, go out after work. And it always felt activated at all times of the day. Importantly, the downtown project doesn't feel formulaic, cobbled together by faceless developers. It's quirky and eccentric, just like its founder. There were even these uh, Airstream parks, these RVs from like the 1950s and 1960s that have that like stainless steel exterior, kind of look like a space age camper. Uh, so there were places where you could go stay in those for a few months. And that was the idea that people would come and, and you would crash and you would stay in these different types of living arrangements. To enable the second C, co-learning, Tony begins to invest in co-working spaces, where people from different fields and industries share an office. Most innovation comes from something outside your industry being applied to your own, and so if we can get together diverse industry groups, 
and entrepreneurs talking to each other who are uh, have a bias towards talking and sharing versus not. Of course, co-working spaces are pretty common today. Just think of WeWork. But in the early 2010s, when the downtown project is getting off the ground, they're still an exciting new concept. And Tony helps to popularize them. It's not just tech companies working together, but also, because now actually there's literally thousands and thousands of co-working spaces all around the world, but not just in tech, which is where it started, but also in fashion and culinary and 3D printing. Tony believes these environments accelerate innovation. So he vows to make downtown Vegas the co-working capital of the world. Some of the casino slash hotels become co-working places, but it actually works well for like an open office. You have this giant floor of like endless uh, real estate with like carpeting, <laughs> going infinite carpeting going in all directions. It was a place where you want to hang out. Linked to this idea is the last C, collisions. Collisions are when people randomly run into each other, talk and share ideas. Tony sees such serendipitous encounters as key drivers of community and creativity. You really did start to see people going from one place to another and bumping into each other on the streets. So collisions become central to the planning and design of the DTP. The walkability component of it, I thought, was really an amazing focus. Like, he didn't want people to be in their cars getting from one place to another. He wanted everything to be densely packed enough that you could easily just, like, walk and, and see things in a very short distance and make it feel like, like those collisions are going to be possible. Tony takes a mathematical approach to creating collisions, setting targets and tracking them to the hour. Every year, his goal is to have 1,000 collision hours. The result, he thinks, will be a city where people actually talk to each other, learn from each other, and energize each other. And that energy, Tony believes, would be unstoppable. Walking around downtown Vegas, I see murals of a strange furry animal on numerous buildings. Upon closer inspection, I realized they're llamas. Yeah, llamas. So some are colorful and cartoonish, and others look eerily real. Zappos makes getting help at any time easy. They're on their way. Great. So you can save the drama. Curfew was two hours ago. For your teenage llama. It turns out that Tony was obsessed with them. They are the unofficial Zappos mascot. For Tony's 40th birthday, friends and employees got tattoos of llamas. The 60-block area of the downtown project is even known as the llama. Now, that's because if you take all the land purchased under the umbrella of the DTP, which is about 28 acres in total for some $100 million, and you look at it from above, it sort of resembles the furry, long-necked creature. As I stroll, I encounter other strange sights, like robot sculptures and rows of fire drums. Many of these are from or are inspired by Burning Man, an annual arts festival in Nevada's Black Rock Desert, which is about a nine-hour drive from where I am now. Now, if you're not familiar, let me explain. Burning Man isn't your typical arts or music festival. It's a temporary, self-contained city that materializes out from the sand for a week each summer and plays host to enormous sculptures, techno music, hippies, drugs, sandstorm, and effigies. 
Its devotees, who house themselves in self-organized camps, they return year after year to have transcendental experiences together in the middle of the desert. In recent years, Burning Man has become really popular with West Coast techies, who have their own interest in alternative utopias. Tony first visited the festival back in 2011. Like many people who go to Burning Man, he had a profound experience at the festival. It supposedly ignited a light in him and altered the course of his life. Burning Man was founded on principles like radical inclusion, radical self-acceptance and communal effort. Tony has said that these principles were really influential in helping him to create the downtown project. For all these lofty ideals, we know by now that Tony also just likes a good time. And while the downtown project is getting off the ground, its employees and associates quickly become known for their hedonistic benders. Quite a feat in the city of sin. In fact, as we heard in episode one, the DTP operates out of a bar. So decisions like what to invest in and how much money should we spend tend to be made over drinks, free-flowing drinks. Working out of a bar, you can imagine how little separation there must be between working and partying. And why not? Just like he'd done at Zappos, Tony wants to imbue the project with fun. Part of that is scrapping the usual rules about what work is supposed to look like. Happy employees, happy community, happy business, right? In 2014, with businesses thriving, thousands of new jobs for the local community and free communal spaces full of amazing art and culture, it looks like Tony's strategy is succeeding. Or at least on paper. Because the downtown project's shiny surface is beginning to crack. Optimistic entrepreneurs who've joined this experiment in community are confronted with troubling realities. And the locals start to ask, is this city still a place for us? It felt like being in the court of like a Elizabethan king or queen. Is everyone really as happy as they're supposed to be? I mean, this is a mafia town, but jeepers, the mafia even knew not to take more than like half of what you're making, right? That's next time on The Cost of Happiness. The Cost of Happiness is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is reported and hosted by me, Nastran Tavakolifar. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producer is Jason Hoke. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. The series producer is Charlie Towler. The story editors are Mira Sharma and Matt Willis. Thomas Curry is the managing producer. Audio recording by Michael Cox at Uprise Recordings. Audio mix and sound design by Charlie Brandon King. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! Yay! 
the hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? <laughs> <laughs> In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What Women Binge, wherever you listen.